high desert of Boulder, Colorado, a mutant nexus at the base of the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, about a mile above the sea level portion of the Babylon Matrix, where we are nestled just beneath the beautiful Flatiron Mountains. This is Jonathan Zapp of ZappOracle.com, and welcome to the podcast of The Path of the Sacred Highlighter, an intro to the Zap Oracle. And basically, this is going to consist of my reading to you some of my uh, favorite Zap Oracle cards, the cards that are highlighted right now for me, beginning with the Path of the Sacred Highlighter, and then uh, a little exposition on the history of the Zap Oracle, which has been in the works for over 30 years now. But this card, very brief, uh, Path of the Sacred Highlighter, card number 593. I'm starting out with that, and I'm giving it the title because it... Uh, in one paragraph expresses an approach to dealing with esoteric material with any kind of material that I follow and that I recommend to others and that I uh, recommend for others to approach my oracle or any oracle or really almost anything. I don't believe in sacred texts. For me, only the highlighter is sacred. When I read texts, I highlight what resonates with my inner truth sense. This is how I hope people will relate to the oracle. Take what resonates with your inner truth sense and leave the rest. This is how I hope people will relate to inner and outer voices, to channeled material, to ancient or modern texts, to revered gurus, to sleazy politicians, to what claims to be the word of God, to everything, everyone, and to life itself. Go with what is highlighted in your psyche as true, beautiful, and significant. Never surrender your highlighter to someone else or to any sort of outside authority. You must always wield your own highlighter. All right, let me pick another card here. Oops. And this is uh, called, maybe I won't do that one next. Let's see. I've got a few of them open here. Trying to find one that feels like it'll be right next. Uh, How about Rope-A-Dope? This is uh, Zap Oracle card number 630. A master first reveals himself in his ability to hold back. Goethe. So it's 630. There right now 662 cards. But more will be added. Rope-A-Dope, the strategy that Muhammad Ali used to beat George Foreman in the Rumble in the Jungle, is a classic warrior strategy that can be applied to many situations. George Foreman, who was younger, bigger, and stronger than Ali, and was the reigning heavyweight champion, was the heavy favorite to win their 1974 championship fight. Foreman was such a powerful puncher that according to Norman Mailer, when he hit the heavy bag, it looked like it was going to break looked like he was going to break it in half. Foreman had demolished the only two men who had ever beaten Ali, Joe Frazier and Ken Norton, both of whom lasted only two rounds. Foreman was such a powerful fighter that he was able to make a comeback after a decade-long retirement and became the oldest man at age 45 to ever become world heavyweight champion. Ali was considered by many to be over the hill, and some sports commentators worried aloud that he might actually be killed in the ring by Foreman. Ali's strategy was all about energy. It was about conserving his energy until just the right moment, while allowing his adversary to waste energy. Ali leaned back in the ropes, 
taunting Foreman and allowing him to pummel him with wild punches while he covered up. In the extreme heat and humidity of Zaire, Foreman soon exhausted himself. By the eighth round, Foreman was so spent that his punches lacked power and his defenses were greatly weakened. Ali pounced and a devastating five-punch combination brought Foreman to the canvas and ignominious defeat. Ropudope became famous as a boxing strategy and was later used with great effect by boxers Manny Pacquiao and Nicolina Loche. Some have also generalized the strategy and applied it to any situation where you tempt a foolish aggressive opponent to expose himself to danger. For example, recently in the news, political analysts have stated that Obama is trying to rope-a-dope the Republicans with the 2011 budget by letting them make the first moves on entitlements and other unpopular budget cuts. This card suggests a greater generalization of the rope-a-dope strategy so that it can also be um, applied to situations where there is no human adversary, but an adversarial force that you cannot simply overpower. It is quite common in almost any area of life to find that your intentions are being blocked by seemingly inexorable forces. When forward progress is blocked by such a force, the common tendency is to punch yourself out in vain efforts to resist or break through the obstruction. This tendency puts us on the losing side of rope dope Let's consider a hypothetical example. Max is a young man in his late 20s who has gone a few years without being able to find a romantic relationship with a woman. Feeling frustrated and desperate, he decides that he's going to find a girlfriend the next month, no matter what. He starts answering every personal ad posted by a woman within 20 years of his age. He goes out on a series of unsatisfactory dates with women, women he has contacted through this process. All the women he meets are embarrassingly incompatible with what he wants, and he grows increasingly resentful and bitter. A couple of weeks after the month has passed, Max still feeling exhausted by his month of romantic futility, meets through his work Sarah, a woman he feels deeply attracted to. Despite the fact that Sarah finds that they have much in common, she is turned off by something overwrought and needy about Max and rebuffs him. In an alternate timeline, Max's life stance is informed by the rope-a-dope strategy. He recognizes that romance isn't happening at the moment and that it's not something you can make happen on a timetable. Instead, Max cheerfully makes progress at work and has deepening friendships with a number of his co-workers. He has a lot of pent-up energy which he sublimates into workouts at the gym. When Sarah shows up at his workplace, she finds herself attracted to a cheerful, fit, and confident Max who is on the top of his game at work and popular with his co-workers. Instead of banging his head against a temporarily closed door, Max bided his time and made progress in a number of open avenues of possibility. On the right side of Rope-a-Dope, when the door to romance opened, he was energized and ready. When we encounter powerful forces, obstructions, grievous absences, adversaries, that stand between us and what we want and or need, we should avoid the temptation to punch ourselves out with futile resistance. To be on the right side of the Rope-a-Dope strategy, we allow a contrary force that is too strong for us to overpower to spend itself while we conserve our energy and move in the direction of open avenues of possibility. An implied rope-a-dope life strategy can be found in the following quote by visionary genius William Blake, who lived from 1757 to 1827. Fool, they call me. I laugh at the goddess Fortune, for I know that she is the devil's servant, 
ready to kiss anyone's ass. I labor upwards into futurity. Blake never got much recognition or income for his work while he was alive. He recognized that fortune was often irrespective of merit. We see this today where celebrity and wealth are often bestowed on the unworthy. Instead of punching himself out trying to resist this aspect of fortune, Blake labored upward into futurity, moving toward the open avenues of possibility, relentlessly working on his poems, engravings, etc. Consider this a propitious time to examine areas of your life where you face tenacious obstacles, grievous absences, and adversaries. Which side of the rope-a-dope strategy do you want to be on? And this generalized uh, rope-a-dope strategy is... Uh, This generalized rope-a-dope strategy is to avoid punching yourself out when you, are encount when you encounter obstructing forces you cannot overpower. Instead, bide your time, conserve your energy, and gracefully keep uh, moving toward open avenues of possibility. And that could be doing the dishes, it could be cleaning your house, it could be, there's always some positive thing that, that's available in almost any situation. Rope-a-dope is a warrior strategy. For more in the warrior approach, you can see my document and podcast, The Way of the Warrior, and other documents in the Warrior Stance category of the website. So we're going to pick a, another card now. Exploring Your Inner Content, card number 519. Few things take as much courage and are capable of producing such valuable results as exploring the unconscious. Nothing could be more crucial than Socrates' great commandment, know thyself. Those who don't know themselves act out their unknown contents in the world, and often with disastrous results. Explore the unconscious with the courage to see the horror and the beauty of the endless diversity of elements. But don't explore as a, a tourist, as a psychedelic uh, thrill-seeker or dilettante. If you enter the unconscious without a moral purpose, as Jung pointed out, you're asking to get wrecked. You would not go deep sea diving without some training, tools, discipline, and a support network. Shamans don't travel into the unconscious to have fun or hang out. They enter with respect, usually for the moral purpose of healing, and they get in and get out as quickly as possible, well aware of the dangers. Another moral purpose to enter the unconscious is to expand consciousness and to share that expanded consciousness with others. Sometimes we're in a state where we are consumed or obsessed with some other controversy, but actually what we are experiencing is much more fundamentally an agitation happening in the unconscious. We live in a mostly extroverted culture where problems and rewards are located in the outer world. But virtually all human problems, war, conflict, environmental destruction, etc., ultimately derive from a single source, human psychology. Try the following meditation. Sit still, focus on your breathing, but instead of trying to still your mind, let it run amok, going wherever it wants to. Have a pen and notebook or other recording system in front of you and record what comes up. It is also of great value to pay attention to your dreams and record them for further study. It is crucial to be aware of the forces and subpersonalities in your personal unconscious. To be ignorant of them is to be ruled by them allowing yourself to be dominated by a network of autonomous complexes. And we've got a couple of quotes from George W. Bush. 
I'm not really the type to wander off and sit down and go through deep wrestling with my soul. That was as quoted in Vanity Fair, October 2000. I'm also not very analytical. You know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about myself, about why I do things. And that was something he said aboard Air Force One on June 4th, 2003. How do you know yourself? One way is continuous mindful attention to the movies with voiceover narration playing in your head all day and all night. There are waking movies, dreaming movies, and daydreaming movies. The WS sort of method of self-inquiry would be to ignore these movies as just bits of nonsense. But notice that every bit of ephemeral whatever, a flickering image, a twisted thought form of words strung together, each of these has an absolutely factual existence. It is a fact that you thought of that particular image, those particular words. The unfolding of the universe is altered because you thought of one thing and not another. And regardless of what a dismissive ego might think, each of these bits of nonsense happens for a reason, is a product of inner forces operating within you. Acknowledging this takes courage because we would rather cling to a neater, tidier version of ourselves, an airbrushed yearbook photo, when actually we look more like labyrinths filled with moving images and words. And these labyrinths have twists and turns and secret corridors we may not know ourselves. If we don't know them, then this unexplained content unexplored content, sexuality, emotions, unintegrated desires, etc., will come spilling out of us as slips of the tongue and sometimes as horrendous, irreversible actions, the stuff that personal and collective histories are made of. For example, <clears throat> these are some Bush, more Bush quotes. The truth of the matter is, if you listen carefully, Saddam would still be in power if he were president of the United States, and the world would be a lot better off. And that was something that uh, W. said in the second presidential debate in St. Louis, Missouri, October 8th, 2004. Our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. George, and that was uh, Washington, D.C., who said that, August 5th, 2004. Who could have possibly envisioned an erection an election in Iraq at this point in history. And that was something he said at the White House, January 10th, 2005. The most important job is not to be governor or first lady in my case. And Bush said that in Pella, Iowa, as quoted by the San Antonio Express News, January 30th of 2000. I want to thank my, my friend, Senator Bill First, for joining us today. You're doing a heck of a job. You cut your teeth here, right? That's where you started practicing. That's good. He married a Texas girl, I want you to know. Karen is with us, a West Texas girl, just like me. And he said that in Nashville, Tennessee, May 27th, 2004. It's all too easy to point to the unconscious of the other, but the only thing standing between you and W consciousness is eternal vigilance about your inner content. You must be willing to explore the sometimes dark and twisted contents of yourself. Really listen to the voices speaking in your head all day long. Notice that there are different tones of voice, different agenda, different subpersonalities speaking with those different voices. Witness the voices or else become them as a sequence of acting out personalities. Witness all the images that appear in your mind. It's said that fear is like a dark room where negatives are developed. 
Carefully study all those negatives, prints, slides, and looping videos. Evaluate each of them on various scales as negative, neutral, positive, fear, anxiety, to calm, spiritual, acceptance, power, love. What characterizes them? Besides careful observation of inner content, you must also recognize that you are not merely a passive observer of these inner artifacts. In fact, you are the producer, the director, the special effects team, and all the actors in these inner movies. You can decide to start editing out certain repetitious scenes and looping voices. You can consciously choose and create thought forms, images, and scenes to add to your inner content. Exploration of inner content is not like a tour of a museum where you mustn't touch any of the glass cases or their curious contents. Inner exploration is an active, interactive, and sometimes interventionist process. To observe a thing is to change a thing, and the maximal case of this is when the object of your observation is your own inner content. Crowley's definition of magic is the science and art of creating change in conformity to will. You are at your most magically empowered when you choose to use your will to create change in your inner content. So throw open all those glass cases, probe all the curious inner contents, and when you are ready, grasp hold of some of these strange artifacts, artifacts and metamorphose them with your will. Exploration of inner content is a pathway of truth that takes great courage, moment by moment. Not everyone who glimpses this pathway to truth has the courage to follow it to the, to the, into the labyrinth of the unconscious. Consider the poem The Wayfarer by Stephen Crane, who lived from 1871 to 1900, just 20, died at 29 years old. The Wayfarer, perceiving the pathway to truth, was struck with astonishment. It was thickly grown with weeds. Ha, huh, he said, I see that no one has passed here in a long time. Later he saw that each weed was a singular knife. Well, he mumbled at last, doubtless there are other roads. For an introduction to learning more about the levels and content of the unconscious, see Thoughts on Young. Uh, that's one of the online documents. Here are a couple of excerpts. Nobody doubts the importance of conscious experience. Why then should we doubt the significance of unconscious happenings? They are also a part of our life, and sometimes more truly a part of it for weal or woe than any happenings of the day. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own souls. They will practice Indian yoga and all its exercises, observe a strict regimen of diet, learn the literature of the whole world, and all because they cannot get on with themselves and have not the slightest faith that anything useful could ever come out of their own souls. Thus the soul had gradually been turned into a navarith from which nothing good can come. Therefore let us fetch it from the four corners of the earth. All the more far-fetched and bizarre it is, the better. And the next card is called Striking While the Iron is Hot. This is uh, card number 515. To strike while the iron is hot means to form something, a time to get to work because your influence, your will, can create useful change. When iron is hot, it is malleable. There is a temporary window of opportunity where it is relatively plastic, and through effort it can be given a form that will become semi-permanent. Alistair Crowley's definition of magic, which we referred to in the previous card, is the science and art of creating change in conformity with will. 
What are the areas of life where the application of your will can create the most effective and life-affirming change? Using myself as example, at age 50, five years ago when I wrote this, I'm 55 now, and this is being recorded uh, August 1st, 2013. At age 50, the iron is no longer hot if I want to break athletic records. But at this age, the iron feels very hot for writing, working on the oracle and other creative tasks. At this age, my cognitive creative skills have matured, but I'm not so old that dementia or lack of vitality are holding me back. The iron feels very hot creatively, and I'm able at this phase to create a lot of new things out of the unformed mass of zeros and ones in the digital forge of cyberspace. If I take good care of my psyche and physical health, it is likely that this type of iron may remain hot for many more years. On the other hand, I can't presume on that. I could have a fatal accident at any time or suffer neurological damage, etc. Therefore, I dare not waste the hot iron that is available to be shaped today. In some areas of life, the iron may be hot during only a narrow window of time. Perhaps there is an opportunity to be a positive influence on someone who is quickly passing through your life. Perhaps an inspiration has just welled up. If you act on it now, you can give it a decisive and satisfying form. But if you wait, that particular piece of iron may have cooled and rigidified and will be much harder to work on. And although it may be less fulfilling, most days there are time-sensitive chores that need to get done. And if not worked on now, they will only become more laborious and waste uh, more resources later on. Where is the hot iron in your life that you need to get to work on? For those of you willing to, uh, to read more, uh, well, I won't go through all of Crowley's Principles of Magic, but you can find them on the website. Let's go to the next card. Oops. Okay. Uh, interpretive Magic. The magic theme here. I'm not picking these quite at random, but I just opened about... 15, 20 cards, and now I'm sort of picking them at random because I don't know which browser tab goes to which one. But this is card number 547 called Interpretive Magic. It is a common and limiting assumption that only one interpretation of an event or situation is correct. But the phenomenal world is rarely so cut and dried. Interpretation may often be more usefully regarded as a choice rather than flattened into what is believed to be the single correct answer. For example, I recently had to send in my laptop, my only computer for repairs. Due to some improbable mishaps, it had to be sent in two more times, and the problem that should have taken days to fix has taken weeks. An extremely reasonable and plausible interpretation is that I had been meaninglessly inconvenienced due to mechanical forces beyond my control. An alternate interpretation is that the improbable mishaps were meant to happen and that I needed space to open up from a long period of laborious editing I was doing. Which of these interpretations is more likely? The first explanation would seem to pass that classic test of logic, Occam's razor, that would have us prefer the simplest, least fancy explanation that accounts for all the facts. By contrast, the meant-to-happen point of view is often used in ways that seem glib and reeking with sentimental rationalization. Mysterious forces or the principle of synchronicity would have to be employed to justify this interpretation, and that means that this hypothesis is significantly fancier than the first. But in some cases of interpretation, 
Likelihood and strict rules of logic are not the most useful aspects when choosing amongst possible interpretations. In the case of the improbably prolonged laptop repair, I recognized both interpretations as potentially valid. Instead of deciding which of these interpretations was, in quotes, right, I recognized that it was much more useful for me to choose the interpretation that I intuitively preferred. When I tried on the first interpretation, the mechanical forces beyond my control interpretation, I found that it did nothing for me except increased stress and a sense of helpless frustration. I could feel my blood pressure rising and my jaw clenching and realized that this interpretation had adverse effects on both my body and psyche. The second interpretation provided a sense of space opening up, a sense of serendipity and unexpected possibilities. By choosing the second interpretation, I entered a different timeline than I would have entered if I had chosen the first interpretation. I decided to read a couple of books on a certain subject that I probably wouldn't have had time to read if I had access to my laptop. These two books were accompanied by some parallel realizations of my own, and this led to a huge life-changing breakthrough in an area of my life that I had struggled with for decades. In this case, choosing the interpretation that felt more empowering and life-affirming seemed to lead to a much more positive outcome. Interpretive magic is capable of changing the past. By choosing the more empowered interpretation of the laptop situation, I altered the meaning of the past and generated a new timeline for myself, past, present, and future, based on that altered meaning. The act of constantly choosing an interpretation of an event or situation is an example of what I call interpretive magic. The creative interpretation of life elements is not merely a matter of passive perception. Once you realize you have the right to interpret and reinterpret certain elements, you usually need to act on the new interpretation to establish the timeline it opens up. And by the way, you know, we interpretation and reinterpretation of memories is something that is absolutely going to happen anyway. This is just about making it a proactive, conscious process. But getting back to my, my previous thought, that, that uh, in order to really establish the new timeline, uh, you have to act on it, and you might be acting as if, as William James put it, uh, to kind of start to build that new timeline. For example, the person who created the artifact in the photograph, now this is a photograph illustrating the card that shows a, a plastic model of a, a Star Wars Imperial Walker, but they painted it in Rastafarian colors and then propped it up on rebar. It, this was at Burning Man. And they recognized that they had the choice to merge elements of the Rastafari religion and Star Wars. Recognizing that they had such a choice led to the creative actions of impaling a Star Wars Imperial Walker on rebar and painting it in Rastafari colors. The opposite of interpretive magic is fundamentalism or orthodoxy of any kind where one's right to interpret or reinterpret might be regarded as sacrilege or heresy. I found that many people who are not overt fundamentalists fall for a similar delusion that I call the museum curator fallacy. Such people view everything, especially things found in nature, as sacred and never to be touched or interfered with. Such museum curator types often have a hands-off attitude toward people especially if they are from an exotic culture, as if they were members of a Star Trek away team with an overly orthodox interpretation of the prime directive. 
Intruding their will on anything seems to them like a sacrilege and an interference with a divine plan. They don't seem to recognize that they were incarnated as human beings, the most interventionist organism that we know of, an attribute that is as much a part of nature as everything else. On the other hand, there are cases where interpretive magic should not be applied. For example, when trying to solve a homicide, there's probably only one correct answer to the question, who was the shooter? Scientific methodology and interpretive magic should obviously not be mixed. If you need to create a falsifiable conclusion and test it, you don't want to apply interpretive magic. While you may be justified in reinterpreting your personal history to transform victim consciousness, if you did this to collective history, your reinterpretation should be based on evidence and not politically convenient revisionism, etc. Arnold Toynbee, the great historian who studied the life cycle of civilizations, concluded that a civilization was in decline when it no longer had a ruling mythology. Your personal mythology is the aggregation of your significant choices of interpretation. Keep your interpretive choices creative and life-affirming so that you have a healthy personal mythology. If you don't have a positive ruling mythology, then your life will be in decline. Consider the occurrence of this card a propitious time to boldly and creatively apply interpretive magic to some area or areas of your life. Next card, 549, is called Grappling with the Dark Side of the Force. Begins with another poem by Stephen Crane. He's the same guy who wrote the, the uh, Wayfarer we read before. Um, again, he lived between 1871 and 1900. I stood upon a high place, is the name of the poem. I stood upon a high place and saw below many devils running, leaping, and carousing in sin. One looked up, grinning, and said, Comrade, brother. The dark side of the force is implicit in the Babylon matrix. We must accept it, but not allow ourselves to be ruled by it. Although history is largely about the dark side of the force, we must not fully externalize the dark side, but must first grapple with it from within. If you are not aware of the dark side of the force operating within yourself, then you're in a state of dangerous blindness and the dark force is able to act out as an autonomous complex within you. Many people are in a state of denial about this because dark side of the force sounds dramatic and exotic, something pertaining to serial killers and Nazis. Actually, it is more often mundane and, and may be ubiquitous in our thinking. Here's a very mundane example of the dark side of the force. There is someone I am intensely attracted to, but they are unav unavailable and or do not return the attraction. I feel a force in me that wants them to want me, wants them not to be who they are, but what I want them to be. I feel a force that doesn't want them to be free to choose what they want, unless it is also what I want, but that just wants them. There is a rage inside the force because it is not getting everything it wants. The rage is not righteous indignation at some injustice. It is the rage of frustrated infantile omnipotence. The dark force inside of me assumes that the world is there to satisfy my wants, and everything I want should be there for my taking. The force wants what it wants when it wants it. How dare anyone else take what is mine, and it is all mine. The example above is just one of the myriad versions of the dark side of the force I can find within myself. Because I also have a will and a conscience and other forces within me, the dark force does not have uh, to rule me. 
even though I do have to acknowledge and integrate its presence. If there aren't strong enough countervailing forces within me, then the dark thought forms in the above example could turn me into a stalker, a predator, or some other sort of malignant narcissist. Indeed, this is exactly what the dark side of the force does to many who are out there in the street and in the corridors of power. Here's an example of two people grappling with the dark side of the force, one in what seems to be a mature way, the other in a way that is immature and or insincere. Pastor Rick Warren asked Obama, does evil exist, and if it does, do we ignore it? Do we negotiate with it? Um, do we contain it, or do we defeat it? And this was a kind of parallel interview uh, McCain and Obama did uh, uh, at the 2008, before the 2008 election. Obama's response, evil does exist. I mean, we see evil all the time. We see evil in Darfur. We see evil in parents uh, who have viciously abused their children. And I think it has to be confronted. It has to be confronted squarely. And one of the things that I strongly believe is that, you know, we are not going to, as individuals, be able to erase evil from the world. Now, the one thing that I think is very important for us is to have the humility in how we approach the issue of confronting evil. But you know, a lot of evil has been perpetrated based on the claim that we were trying to confront evil. And I think one thing that's very important is having some humility in recognizing that, you know, just because we think our intentions are good doesn't always mean that we're going to be doing good. And uh, so what Obama said is, seems very related to what Nietzsche said, that if you're in, in fighting monsters, it's, it's very important not to become a monster in the process. I'm paraphrasing. One hour later, Warren asked McCain the same question about evil and what we should do about it. McCain's response began this way, defeat it. Grappling with the dark side of the force means grappling with it within as well as without. All right, next card. Rebelling from the pain body matrix. This is card number 556. Each of us has a pain body, a self that is addicted to receiving and or inflicting pain. If we are not conscious of our pain body, then it has many opportunities to take us over and pull us into the pain body matrix. When I used to glimpse my pain body, I saw a shadowy self wrapped up in clinging to a security blanket. The security blanket looked almost like a blanket-shaped tumbleweed. It was composed of thorns and barbed wire. Sometimes I've glimpsed the pain bodies of others. I have a friend who once called himself Dark Mark. As an adolescent, Mark had an addictive and codependent relationship to his pain body. He would sit in the dark and listen to songs that were eloquent of pain. Led Zeppelin's Since I've Been Loving You and Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You were particular favorites especially after a painful breakup for him. Mark would trip out on his pain. Memories of romantic betrayals and feelings of abandonment were the preferred flavors of pain, and these were indulged in to the point of intoxication. It was like he was sharing a bottle with his pain body, a bottle and then a syringe. As the two of them got stoned on pain together, they blurred and became one entity that named itself Dark Mark, and the syringe became literal. He was a heroin addict for a while. As I look at my pain body right now, I see something different. I see a person-shaped constellation of what seems like little stars, stars that vary in color and intensity. Each of these stars is a moment of intense pain in my past. 
These moments were singular enough to have a continuing life of their own. The stars that make up this person and form its body of pain go dormant when I'm in a good mood. They become like cold, dark, and hungry embers, waiting to be rekindled with life energy. If a new, acutely painful episode occurs, then the myriad little stars composing my pain body reignite and get to live again. They especially get to live again and glow more intensely than other stars when the new pain has parallel resonance with the pain that they radiate. So if a star of pain was formed due to a romantic portrayal, for example, then if there is a new such portrayal, the old portrayal stars get a chance, through sympathetic resonance, to glow with a particularly vicious brilliance. If enough of the stars inside the pain body ignite and reach a certain intensity of brilliance, then something of then, then um, something of orgasmic significance occurs for the pain body. It gets to be you. If you identify with your pain, you become your pain body, a tendency that gets stronger the more it is allowed to happen. We may be so accustomed to being our pain body that we default to it, like an old addict defaulting to their addiction. The pain body feels entitled to our life energy. It looks for painful occurrences so that it can come back into ascendance. If it can't find such occurrences in the present, it has a rich and varied supply from the past it can bring forward. It can also create imaginary occurrences to justify and energize its existence. I see my pain body thrusting a demanding hand, palm upward toward my face. In the hand are some cold embers, the synambulant embryos of past pain. The pain body demands that I breathe life energy onto these dark nuggets, that I reignite them with my life force so that they can become stars burning in the person-shaped constellation of its body. If I do this, the pain body hands me very dark glasses to put on. Through the dark glasses, the world looks dark and heavy, and everything seems to have a jagged edge like broken bottle glass. Through the dark glasses, I cannot, I cannot see the pain body, and this cloaking effect pleases the pain body very much. The pain body knows that if I can see it, I may choose to steal life energy back from it. When the pain body, when the pain body prefers, perfects its invisibility, it becomes me, and I lose all awareness that I ever had other selves. If by some act of will I separate myself from my pain body, if I take off the dark glasses and look at it, the pain body hisses with anger and frustration. It doesn't want me looking at it, this naked person-shaped constellation of dark embers scurrying from view. It races toward my back, toward my blind spots, and desperately looks for a vulnerability in me, a wound, a portal that will allow it to enter into me and become me once again. Like a bed bug retreating into dark and hidden recesses, the pain body awaits inevitable moments of inattention, moments of sleepiness or high stress, when it can scurry out of hiding and suck hungrily at life force, engorging itself with blood. Like an alcoholic always reaching for one more drink, the pain body is always reaching for one more chance to slip back in and reassert its dominion. We need to re remain alert to the pain body's many attempted incursions and to its myriad slippery guises. The pain body has the insidious confidence of one who knows that it, it has had its way with us many times before. 
an octopus is so an octopus is so flexible uh, that it, it can siphon its body through the neck of a wine bottle and then expand to fill the whole interior space. The pain body is like that, a master of infiltration, and if necessary, it can even become a gas that expands to fill the whole atmosphere around us. Those close to us breathe in our gaseous pain body, and this may activate their pain bodies. All too easily, we become part of a pain body network, a web of tormented relationships. And like the other pain bodies in our network, we medicate, self-medicate, act out, and in other ways, bind ourselves to the pain body network. The gaseous darkness of the pain body network expands to infiltrate the atmosphere of the planet until it forms a pain body matrix. A great gift we can give the world is to see our pain bodies and remove them from the local and planetary networks of pain bodies. The price of freedom from the pain body matrix is eternal vigilance. And the concept of the pain body originates with Eckhart Tolle, and you could read transcripts of Eckhart talking about the pain body. That's linked up on the um, online document version of this card. Just uh, search in the category window of the site. And you can Google pain body for much more. And you can also see uh, the podcast or document, a guide to the reflex interdimensional traveler for techniques that can help with afflictive thoughts and feelings. That's the name of the appropriate section called dealing with afflictive thoughts and feelings. And you could also see my documents awakening from the document awakening from depression, which is another Oracle card you can search for on the site. Okay, next card. Ah, it's kind of related. Seeing blind spots, because we talked about how the pain body would always try and scurry for your blind spots. It's a relevant sequence, though I didn't consciously design it. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thy own eye? Matthew 7.3 and sometimes people uh, not familiar with King James English find that uh, confusing. A moat, it would just be like a little speck in your brother's eye, and then the beam would be like a two-by-four in your own eye. So just to put it in plainer modern English. Blind spots are the greatest generator of tragedies in human experience. Violence to self and others almost always occurs in a state of eclipse by one or more blind spots. And by the way, this just... To, little overview here you can see that there have been quite a few cards here that have dealt with the shadow side and any oracle that's worth its salt or worth the zeros and ones it's made of and in this case since it's an online oracle has got to deal with the dark side as well like this is why angel cards are not a satisfactory oracle at least for me because if, if you're not throwing in all the archetypes including the, the dark and uncomfortable ones then you don't really have a real oracle that can mirror uh, the, the patterns of energy and change and so forth that comprise a human incarnation. Okay, back to the card. This card challenges you to locate your own blind spots and those of people close to you. If you don't think you have blind spots, then that is the first blind spot you need to recognize. Even psychologists who specialize in blind spots find themselves frequently succumbing to blind spots. Captain Jacob von Zanten was one of the most accomplished and experienced pilots in the world with a spotless record. 
he was the head of KLM's safety program. That's the Dutch National, Dutch National Airline. Nevertheless, during a day of acute frustration, he made the impulsive decision to take off in a foggy, unfamiliar airport without tower clearance and plowed into another jet, resulting in the death of 584 people. Captain Van Zanten was motivated by one of the most classic blind spots known as loss aversions, loss aversion. Many studies show that people are far more motivated by preventing losses than they are by achieving comparable gains. It is loss aversion that keeps someone at the casino table trying to recoup losses until their life savings are gone. Captain Van Zanten had an excellent on-time record that was being undermined by a series of mishaps that day and he couldn't stand the thought of the loss of his good record. His co-pilot, who warned him that he did not have tower clearance to take off, went along with the impulsive decision because of another classic blind spot, the tendency to override your own better judgment out of deference to a person of authority. Here are some of the other classic blind spots. Planning fallacy. The tendency to underestimate task completion times, and I just fall for that every day. I always think that things are going to take one-third as long as they actually take. Need for closure. Studies show that creative people are better able to live with ambiguity, but many cannot bear it. To overcome ambiguity, doubt, and uncertainty, people reach premature closure on important decisions, convincing themselves that they have reached the correct verdict. Time and or social pressure increase this tendency. People who surrender to fundamentalisms and absolutisms are often trying to be are trying to permanently immunize themselves from the threat of ambiguity. And uh, later we'll read a card on ambiguity. Post-purchase rationalization. The tendency to persuade oneself that a purchase was a good value. This tendency may derive from loss aversion. We don't like to admit that we didn't get a, very, that we didn't get a good deal. Wishful thinking. The formation of beliefs and the making of decisions according to what is pleasing to imagine rather than through evidence or reasoned consideration. Halo effect. The first traits we recognize in others influence our interpretations and perceptions of later ones because of our expectations. For example, good-looking people are judged as having better personalities and skills than those of average appearance. Celebrity endorsements improve sales of products that the celebrity knows nothing about. Illusion of asymmetric insight. People perceive their knowledge of their peers to surpass their peers' knowledge of them. Illusion of transparency. People overestimate others' ability to know them, and they also overestimate their ability to know others. Outgroup homogeneity bias. Individuals see members of their own group as being relatively more varied than members of other groups. Like when people say, oh, those Chinese, they all look alike. Uh, my side bias. Our own perspectives seem much more obvious and strong in our minds than those of others. Negativity bias. It takes five compliments to make up for one negative remark in a relationship. Instant gratification. A quick pleasurable payoff outweighs long-term consequences. The following are classic blind spots for which I've made up names. So these are some blind spots I've come up with. They're not as well researched as the other ones, but it's my, my try of the subject. Other guy fallacy. 
Tragic consequences only happen to the other guy. Young males are particularly prone to this and take extreme risks. Overvaluation of statistics. Not everything that can be counted counts. Not everything that counts can be counted. And that's a quote usually attributed to Einstein. Though we know there's a lot of fake Einstein quotes out there, so... <clears throat> That's kind of a biblical tradition where they would kind of, or an ancient document tradition where they would sort of backdate prophecies to figures that had been dead for hundreds of years. I think the book of Daniel was written this way. And uh, so now they're doing it with Einstein, where if you want a, a quote to carry, have gravitas, you attribute it to Einstein. But maybe he really said this, so I don't know. Fashionable darkness bias. A novel, film, etc., with a positive ending is thought to be naive and or grossly commercial. Dark art, thought, though often a postmodern cliché, is thought to be more authentic, daring, and avant-garde. And you can see my friend Rob Brezhny's book, Pronoia, for more in this vast cultural bias. Here are some blind spots I've noticed um, myself. I guess the other ones are ones I noticed myself too, but uh, these are, are somewhat less, uh, some maybe a little bit more peculiar to me, I don't know. The special occasion fallacy. Almost any occasion can be interpreted as either particularly stressful or celebratory and declared a special occasion. Once the special occasion label is applied, we can suspend disciplines and allow unwise indulgences. For example, studying for finals is a special occasion, so I allow myself to eat all the ice cream and pizza I want. The antidote Every day seems like a special occasion. I need to eat now in a way that would be suitable to set up as a pattern of lifelong eating. I think this is kind of close to what Kant called the categorical imperative, where like, you act as if like, your actions would sort of set the model for what would make sense for people in general to act, and, and therefore for you to act you know, any day. So eat today the way it would make sense for you to eat any day. Food is merely one example. The special occasion blind spot is one that can riddle a lifetime the way holes riddle Swiss cheese. A drama queen, for example, is someone who has the special occasion blind spot at the center of his way of life. As Dorothy Canfield Fisher said, nothing is cheaper and shoddier than dramatic living. We feel entitled to indulge when we are eclipsed by the special occasion blind spot and thereby lose awareness that it is the now ever that is the special occasion, an occasion that has a sacred aspect and that demands of us what I call existential impeccability, the stance of impeccability that is path-oriented rather than goal-oriented. And maybe I should have uh, added something to that, that basically what I found with, with food and other indulgences is that basically every moment feels either celebratory or stressed, and so therefore you can rationalize indulging because you're celebrating and feel euphoric or because you feel stressed and therefore feel you need a treat and so therefore basically 100 percent of the time uh, you can justify it okay next blind spot i'm not i'm not a fan at all of bathroom humor or scatological references i don't like that at all but this one just had to be called kurt vonnegut's fart paradox in one of his novels, Kurt Vonnegut pointed out that we are much more offended by the smell of other people's farts than by our own. In other words, we overestimate the annoyingness of others while underestimating how we might be annoying to them. For example, we're offended by the banality of someone's loud, oblivious cell phone conversation, 
but don't notice when we intrude our cell phone conversations in public places. The I fallacy. We always refer to ourselves as I, when actually there is typically a revolving cast of often very different subpersonalities. Attraction paradox. We want other people to be attracted and love us for who we really are, while we allow our romantic attractions to largely depend on appearance. So this would be the guy who's, you know, basically what he's saying is, uh, I just want hotties to love me for who I really am. Um, but meanwhile, um, obviously, uh, he's only wants people who uh, are, have a certain appearance parameter and so forth, but doesn't want that applied to himself. And of course, it could be herself as well. The celebrity fallacy. The belief that celebrities are fundamentally better off despite all evidence to the contrary. In fact, they even did a recent study that shows being a celebrity lowers your life expectancy, even taking all kinds of things into account and so forth, like the fact that they may be more likely to f fly in planes and so forth. The amazing, uh, like small planes, you know, that would be more likely to have accidents. The amazing success formula fallacy, the belief belief in hyped up one size fits all success formulas. Dieters, multi-level level marketing folks, and power of positive thinking, you create your own reality absolutists, are especially prone to this delusion. The secret, many self-help books, surefire methods to get rich quick, etc. When asked the secret of his success as a composer, Philip Glass responded, my secret, I get up early in the morning and work all day long. Even that isn't a success formula because Philip happens to be a genius who works all day long. So once again, that was called the amazing success formula fallacy. And I get people pitching me these things all the time. The romantic completion fallacy. Seeking a beloved to make yourself whole. Wholeness can only be found where it always was within. You betray your inner wholeness by making it dependent on another. The real life up ahead fallacy. This isn't your real life right now. You're working towards your real life up ahead when you find your soulmate, perfect weight, career, dream house, etc. If nothing else, aging painfully exposes this fallacy. The antidote, what I call existential impeccability, where you're path-oriented, not goal-oriented, and you are realizing that uh, this is your real life right now. There's a Venetian saying, uh, where are you rushing to, young man? You're already there. The star fallacy. I recognize myself as the star of my movie, but fail to recognize that other people are the stars of their movies. Consider this a propitious time to become more aware of how you and those close to you are affected by blind spots. And this card invites your participation. Uh, what blind spots have you noticed that I'm not mentioning here? Um, and so you should just be on the lookout for your own personal blind spots as well as some of these more classical ones or ones I've noticed about myself and others. Uh, for example, my editor, Austin Iredell, suggested the following. Asymmetrical suffering, the idea of feeling that your experience and hardships are unique or perhaps greater than those of others. For example, nobody knows the troubles I've had. People in Haiti probably have no idea what I have to go through to run my website and that kind of thing. All right. Next card.
Oh, it picks up just where one of the last one's uh, blind spots left off. You, th you would think I planned this, but I didn't. This one's called The Other Stars, Zap Oracle card number 632. Every man and woman a star. That's a Crowley quote, I believe. It's all too easy to become the star of your movie and to forget that others are the stars of their movies. The same event may look very different in the context of your movie than it does in the movie of another star. We all too easily forget to respect the otherness of the other and expect stars to play the roles we have assigned to them. We want others to live inside of our movie and when they act from their own movies, we point the finger of blame at them for being different than we imagined. To us it seems obvious that they would be much better off playing the lovely supporting roles we assigned for them. We are easily offended when others go renegade, step off of our script, and begin extemporizing their own roles. It is flattering to recognize yourself as a star, but it is more humbling than many of us can take to recognize that others are also stars. Stars vary greatly in size, brightness, and uh, where they are in their life cycle. It is important to recognize that each star is unique and the variations can be dramatic. It is also crucial to recognize that despite the differences, other stars are cosmic bodies of the same order of magnitude that, that you are. Um, each star has its own trajectory and inertia. Although we may constellate with other stars, each of us has an independent nuclear core. When it comes to the other star, our information is woefully incomplete. Usually, even if we live under the same roof, we haven't been there for most of the other star's movie. Since we've missed most of the other's screen time, inevitably there are secrets about their movie that we don't know. The other also has secrets about their movie that they don't know. We must respect both types of secrets. Even with our eyes fairly open, we are blind to much of the core identity of the other star. Relating to another star can be like entering a foreign movie where there are no subtitles. Interpenetrating with the other's movie we find ourselves in a misty foreign culture where traditions and perceptions are quite different. We may do something that has benign intentions from inside our movie, but when it shows up in their movie, it appears as something highly offensive. Inevitably, there will be gaffes, moments when we say or do exactly the wrong thing in another star's movie. Similarly, we find that other stars may often say or do exactly the wrong thing from within our movie. When dealing with a different culture, wide allowances must be made for differences in custom and perception. It is not necessarily a bad thing that I have my own movie. I need to live by my own mythology and vision and life philosophy. But I must also respect that other stars have their movies based on their individualized mythologies, visions, and life philosophies. The feelings of the other stars are as real as my feelings. I must live from my own movie but also be able to peer outside of it and recognize that flickering all around me are the movies of other stars. To work well with other stars, I must recognize the Technicolor blind spot. Ah, picks right up on the blind spot theme. The Technicolor blind spot is the classic optical illusion that finds my movie more Technicolor, high resolution, and widescreen than the movies of others. The Technicolor blind spot makes it look like others would be happier and more alive if they lived in my movie rather than in their own. If I project my movie into the movie of another star, a third distorted movie is created with a confused melange of images imperfectly superimposed on other images. 
What I must do, and gently encourage other stars to do, is to project our movies in parallel. When two movies are projected in parallel with graceful precision, they may coalesce for a time into a dynamic third movie that unfolds and develops, enlivened by the extemporaneous collaboration of parallel stars. Okay, this card is, next card is called number 574, Catching What's in Reach. Often we are so mesmerized by long-term goals, by what is presently unavailable, by the past, by what is out of reach, that we fail to notice or act on things within our reach right now. Each day is like a stream flowing from awakening to bedtime. If we're not fully awake and engaged, the stream can flow by before we even notice. This may be what's happening to older people who say the years just fly by. Every day stream has tiny windows of opportunity, the chance for a few seconds of pleasant conversation with a store clerk, that 15-minute chunk of time before you have to get to the next appointment, that listless half hour in the evening, which you could fritter away channel or web surfing, or spend soulfully calling a friend you haven't conversed with in a year, or writing in your journal. Coming down the day stream are the endless flotsam and jetsam of potential distractions, but amidst the debris are some things of great value if we are able to reach for them in time. Sometimes we are so caught up in what is lacking in our, in our life that we fail to notice things within our reach during this day stream. To grasp them, we have to be alert, and our timing needs to be just right. Most days there are some key high-value things I'm trying to reach for. The morning writing session, 90 minutes for exercise, high-quality relationship time, time for high-quality reading and or watching of movies or documentaries. On a day off, I can get all four of these in, but on working days, I might be able to get only three out of the four. On a particular busy day, maybe only two out of four. As you approach your day stream, know what your three or four high-value things are. You know that the scheduled stuff like work is going to happen, and you know that opportunities for distraction will be flowing all around you. But if you time things just right, maybe you can get in three of the four instead of two of the four. Consider this a propitious time to focus on your day stream with alert engagement and catch what's in reach. And for some simple grounded strategies to get more out of your day stream, see the document podcast, Pathfinding Day Mapping. Keeping your inner dignity, card number 573. One of the most crucial defenses from the many hardships of the Babylon matrix is the maintaining of inner dignity. Many of us, with the giddy and naive optimism of the disincarnate, chose to incarnate into the human form, never fully realizing the almost infinite array of indignities and inconveniences involved in such a corporeal existence. Being in a physical body subject to illness, disease, gravity, and scarcity of resources is bad enough, but when you add in that you will be stuck in a monobody reality, in which you'll be limited to one gender-specific body aging in a linear time frame, with no ability to change your form at will, so that for decades you may have to live with approximately the same face, race, and other physical parameters programmed into you at birth, then the grim imposition of human incarnation becomes nearly intolerable. And if this weren't enough indignity, in the Babylon matrix you find yourself in a realm 
literally swarming with other entities, similarly confined to monobodies, who are stumbling and thrashing about in the same murky darkness that envelops you. Now and throughout the history of the Babylon Matrix, unhappy hominids compensate for the indignities of corporeal incarnation by inventing and executing myriad ways, subtle and grossly unsubtle, to insult, degrade, and even obliterate the dignity of other embodied entities. Across many periods and cultures, this is the most classic of Babylon Matrix games, uh, the oppressed becoming the oppressor. However, if this ever popular recreation, reinforced by millennia of patriarchal history, does not work for you, if you prefer the deviant path of respecting the dignity of other entities while maintaining your own inner dignity, then this card has relevance to your situation. The first consideration in maintaining inner dignity is to restrain yourself from all the many ways, subtle and unsubtle, in which you could be insulting or oppressing the dignity of other entities. Many incarnates who have an exaggerated uh, notion of their own dignity have no respect for the dignity of others. They may be acutely aware of perceived slights to their own dignity, while at the same time they are oblivious to the indignities they heap on others. So this is the first rule of inner dignity. One, first, do no harm to the dignity of others. Following this rule alone is enough to keep most of us busy with self-examination and restraint for a lifetime. The second interrelated rule is, two, do as little as possible that compromises your inner dignity. These principles are obviously interrelated because your ability to recognize and respect the inner dignity of others is contingent upon your ability to maintain your own inner dignity. Conversely, those who abuse the dignity of others are those who confuse false pride with inner dignity. There are infinite ways in which we can compromise our inner, digni our inner dignity. One of the most obvious is when we choose to go along with the unreasonable demands or actions of others. There are other cases where we don't have a choice about submitting to unreasonable demands and actions. In such cases, our outer dignity is oppressed, but our inner dignity does not have to be if we have sufficient inner strength. In some of the worst cases, however, outer indignities may be so severe, the case of torture, for example, that inner strength cannot be expected to prevail. In such cases, it is not we who choose to compromise our inner dignity. Our inner dignity is compromised by forces outside of our control. Our job, therefore, is to defend our dignity and that of others whenever we do have a choice. One of the most classic ways that we compromise our inner dignity is when we choose to reach for nourishment that does not nourish. For example, when we choose to abuse our bodies with poor quality food and other toxic substances. We also compromise inner dignity when we choose to imbibe low quality cultural products such as bad music, literature, or video. Another form of poor nourishment is when our addiction to the social matrix is such that we choose unworthy companions and degrading situations to fill our time. Ask yourself of various choices if you will remember them well on your deathbed. The question will usually sharply divide what preserves inner dignity and what compromises it. The third rule for preserving inner dignity is three, recognize that some people will dislike you and want to attack your dignity through no fault of your own. The Babylon Matrix is a projection world where people continually project disowned parts of themselves onto others. 
The people who want to insult your dignity are not really seeing you. They are seeing a phantom that they associate with you. For example, let's say a highly attractive young woman is walking down a city street and encountering strangers. None of these strangers know who she is, but they are all able to register her appearance. To one guy, she is an attractively sculpted piece of meat, lighting up in his reptilian consciousness like a glowing target. He sees body parts and shoots an unpleasant glance at her, expressive of what he would like to do with those various body parts. A young woman passes her and sends her another unpleasant glance that is expressive of her projection. That bitch thinks she can get any guy she wants. Each of these glances is an attack on her dignity happening on the energetic plane, and although she can resist them and preserve her inner dignity, it is also rather exhausting and stressful. And then there is the very real danger that some projection-based attacks may come on the physical plane. Of course, you don't have to be good-looking to be subject to noxious projections. If you are a mutant, for example, and check my the glossary of zap terms on the homepage of the site for definitions for mutant, Babylon matrix, etc. If you're a mutant, for example, and hard for people to categorize in their minds, you may get some very polarized reactions. Also, the projections and attacks on our dignity do not come exclusively from strangers or people who completely misunderstand us. They can also come from people who are very close to us and know us well. As two people get to know each other, they become more real to each other. But oddly enough, when they are really close with each other, they can start to become less real again. When two people are all too familiar with each other, they become part of each other's mental furniture. Since most people are a bit mixed up and ambivalent about self-image, identity, and other life aspects, when two people are really close, they become mixed up with each other's inner ambivalence. If one person has compromised inner, inner dignity, he will inevitably strike out at the inner dignity of someone he is really close to. Number four, maintaining inner dignity means that we carefully examine our projections onto others and their projections onto us. Our projections are much less likely to compromise the dignity of others when we bring our vigilant awareness to them. Similarly, the projections of others are much less likely to harm our inner dignity if we are aware that they are projections. This is what Catherine Hepburn meant when she said, I don't care what is written about me so long as it isn't true. The principles of maintaining inner dignity could be multiplied past the scope of this card because they apply to so many spheres and aspects of life. Consider this a propitious time to reflect on the many ways that you can benefit yourself and others by maintaining inner dignity. Okay, next up is card 379, Liminal Space. Liminality is the state that exists between and betwixt, at the edges of boundaries at dawn and dusk, in the moments before falling asleep, in the moments of resurfacing from the dream time into waking. It is a time that is often more vulnerable, but also more alchemically charged. The liminal state is not as fully formed as what is on either side of it. It partakes of both sides, and therefore it is an ideal state for creating new forms. Most of the Zap Oracle cards, for example, were and are created in liminal space. My favorite time to write is in the very early hours of morning before dawn, when I have just come out of the dream time and before most of the surrounding community has awakened. It is a time when most people are at the peak of their REM cycle before the glare of daylight begins 
and the sounds of garbage trucks backing up are heard, and the thought forms of commuters crowd the psychic space. I've always been attracted to airports, which are liminal spaces, always in transition. And I like to live and work at hostels where, where people stay uh, transitionally. I have also noticed that the days before departing on a significant journey are oftentimes of greatly heightened intensity and strange occurrences. I am still in my home base, but there is a sense of impending change and the familiar world is altered by the proximity to an event horizon of travel, in other words. In the case of liminal space occurring before a major transition, there is likely to be a test or trial, often involving threshold guardians before one can cross the event horizon into the new place or interstate. An excellent article on liminality in Wikipedia states, the liminal state is characterized by <clears throat> ambiguity, openness, and indeterminacy. One's sense of identity dissolves to some extent, bringing about disorientation. Liminality is a period of transition where normal limits to thought, self-understanding, and behavior are relaxed, a situation which can lead to new perspectives. People, places, or things may not complete a transition, or a transition between two states may not be fully possible. Those who remain in a state between two other states may become permanently liminal. Examples of the permanently liminal would include people who naively abused hallucinogens and have become permafried. A theory of schizophrenia uh, developed by Terence McKenna, see the path of the numinous for a discussion of this theory, is that many schizophrenics are people who are undergoing spontaneous shamanic initiatory experiences without any guidance and with neuropharmaceutical sabotage <clears throat> from modern psychiatry so that they never pass through the initiation but remain permanently liminal. This theory would account for the complete absence of schizophrenia and many other psychopathologies noted by anthropologists who have studied tribal societies. The artist, shaman, prophet, mystic, seer, or visionary is one who is able to enter liminal space and emerge from it with a coherent cultural product, words, images, etc., to share with the collective. Other liminal beings include illegal aliens, as they exist in a place but without established status, transgendered persons, bisexuals, or others of uncertain sexual orientation, people of mixed ethnicity, the accused who have not yet been judged guilty or not guilty, hybrids, cyborgs and shapeshifters, etc., all exist in liminality. A liminal time of anyone's life is adolescence, where one is no longer a child, but not quite an adult, and where one is in a tense, metamorphic state of experimenting with identities, and from which one may transform higher or lower. Human incarnation can be seen as a liminal state between birth and death, where one is subject to constant change and transformation. I believe the human species to be in a liminal adolescent phase of heightened instability, occurring in a zone between the possibilities of extinction and quantum evolutionary change. Liminal space is a place of hauntings and visions, like William S. Burroughs' Interzone, or the TV series The Twilight Zone. As the Wikipedia article points out, the name of the television series, The Twilight Zone, makes reference to this, describing it as the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, in one variant of the original series opening. The name is from an actual zone observable from space in the place where daylight or shadow advances or retreats about the Earth. Uh, 
noon and more often midnight can be considered liminal, the first transitioning between morning and afternoon, the latter between days. Within the year, liminal times include equinoxes, when day and night have equal length, and solstices, when, when the increase of day or night shifts over to its decrease. Where the quarter days are held to mark the change in seasons, they also are liminal times. New Year's Day, whatever its connection or lack of one to the astronomical sky, is a liminal time. Customs such as fortune-telling take advantage of this liminal state. In a number of cultures, actions and events on the first day of the year can determine the year, leading to such beliefs as first foot. Many cultures regard it as a time especially prone to hauntings by ghosts, liminal beings, neither alive nor dead. And those were last two paragraphs were quotes from the Wikipedia article. The occurrence of this card, depending on its position in the reading, and depending on your position in cycles of change and transformation, may indicate a propitious time to appreciate the value of liminal spaces and beings, and the conscious use of liminality as a catalyst for metamorphosis and vision. Well, I think that's probably enough cards for anybody to absorb in one podcast, so I think I'm going to close it out here, and there'll probably be a part two. Thank you very much for listening. This is Jonathan Zapp of zapporacle.com signing off.